Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to thank you and welcome you to our latest Common Hour talk. Now, before our esteemed speaker would like to begin, I'd like to share with you a summary of some of his works and some of his accolades over the years. Mr. Richard Weingarten is a graduate of Trinity College, class of 1968. He worked for the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services as a Regional Director of Consumer Affairs for 15 years. He previously taught Portuguese and Brazilian culture at John Carroll University in Cleveland for two years. He also facilitated mood disorder support groups in Cleveland. In 1994, he was hired at Yale University in New Haven. As a Regional Director of Consumer Affairs, he founded a consumer-run vocational services and educational programs for people with serious mental illness. He served on the National Alliance on Mental Health Illness Board of Directors for five years. He has published dozens of articles in mental health journals here in the United States, Brazil, and the Netherlands. These articles were about illness and recovery and the work he was doing in New Haven and around the state of Connecticut. He received an academic appointment at the Yale School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry, where he was involved in the training of psychiatric residents and postdoctoral fellows. His work in mental health has been directed towards the implementation of the new recovery model in the public mental health sector. He has also written and spoken about the problem of stigma and exclusion of persons with psychiatric diagnoses and their families. In 2008, he was featured on CPTV as a person living successfully with mental illness. Since retiring in 2009, he has consulted across the United States, the Netherlands, Brazil, and Israel. Now, if you would please welcome Mr. Richard Weingarten. Oh, good afternoon, everyone. It's really a, a ple pleasure and a privilege to be here with you this afternoon. Um, I, um, I graduated in 1968, which is a very tumultuous year, not only at Trinity, but around the country. Uh, after graduation, I went to uh, the Peace Corps in Brazil, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer for three years. Um, my first project, I, I think it was because of the confidence that I got at Trinity in terms of education, that my first project was organizing and directing an adult literacy school in the town where I was living. Turned out to be my most successful project since uh, the teachers took it over after I left and continued it. That was kind of the goal of the Peace Corps, was to try to start something that would meet a local need and also be continued after you left. After leaving uh, Bahia State in the northeast of Brazil, I went to Rio de Janeiro, where I got a job working as a foreign news correspondent for United Press International, and I was with them a little over a year and a half. Those years in Brazil were probably the happiest of my life, and uh, I maintain a connection to Brazil that's very important to me, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that later in my talk. About a year after I got back from Brazil, um, I ended a long-term relationship and also left a graduate program of Brazilian studies at the University of Texas in Austin. And the combination of these two losses, the loss of a significant other, loss of a significant project, plummeted me into a severe clinical depression. My life kind of turned upside down. I, I, never, I never 
was depressed before. Well, I was mildly depressed in the Peace Corps the first four or five months because I didn't speak the language and had to spend a lot of time alone. But this depression in Boston was like something that I had never experienced before. I know that uh, the experience of, of depression uh, is, is the pain of depression is, is so tremendous that a, friend, a colleague of mine who's a psychiatrist in Western Pennsylvania who has bipolar illness said that for her, depression was as painful as giving birth to 15-pound twins. For me, depression was a feeling of great emptiness inside and also a feeling of severe pain in my head. Uh, I wasn't motivated to do anything. I was, my sleep was disrupted. I didn't have an appetite. Um, I, I couldn't get out of bed. You know, I, I, my, the, the, the pain of depression wanted me to sink into oblivion, and so I slept a lot. Fortunately, I went into therapy right after my depression started with a, a very wonderful doctor at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he was a very unusual doctor, and he helped me a lot. Um, you know, when I went into therapy, I didn't want to come across as a basket case, even though I probably was one at the time. I wanted to come across as a regular guy. And so I would talk at the beginning of the session about jogging that I had done. I'd always continued to do physical things, which was helpful. But I was jogging, and it turned out that the, that the therapist was a jogger, too. And I remember one time he came back to, to therapy once uh, where he was uh, limping, and I asked him what was the problem. He said he had tried to run a 10K the week before and was, couldn't really, he wasn't really trained for it and came away feeling very sore and bruised. I thought that was kind of unusual for a doctor to admit he made a mistake. And he was an unusual doctor. He, he gave me hope when I was in despair, and I was in great despair at the time. He, he had a strategy for my recovery. He said, and when you, have, when you have hope, hope is not pie in the sky, something that you think may happen. Hope is when you have a way of getting to a place where you think things are going to get better. And he gave me a strategy. He said that my self-concept was very negative and that if we could, he and I could reconstruct my self-concept to, to a more positive self-concept or self-image, I would be able to withstand the symptoms of my illness. And I worked on that for several years with him and then after I left him. He also was a collaborator. The therapy with him was a collaboration. He would, ask, he would say, when you get out into the, into the, in the community, Remember the thing, the situations or the people that got you. He said, when, we, when you come back, we'll talk about those situations. And we did, and it turns out that I was able to start getting a kind of a shape of my illness. He also pointed out to me that I had a faulty brain filter, that I could get easily overwhelmed by sensory information in a busy environment. So, for example, if I went to a restaurant at a busy hour, it was easy for me to start to get flooded with sensor information, and my senses would shut down. One time a friend of mine came to this area, and we went to a Boston Red Sox game in, in Boston against the Yankees. And the Boston the place, of course, was filled with fanatical Boston Red Sox fans. And towards the seventh and eighth inning, Boston came back, and they actually beat the, Yan the Yankees by a score of one run at the end of the a game. 
And when Boston scored the, the winning run, the fans all rose up out of their seats and started screaming and yelling. You know how it is when Boston fans get excited. And here I was sitting in my seat, kind of all scrunched up, and a friend of mine said, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you on your feet? I, all I could say to him was that I'm fine. It's just downtime that I need, and I'd be all right. And on the way back home, I, I was feeling better. I think one of the things that you really do when you have, a, when you have a, an illness that is, that is chronic is you learn coping mechanisms for situations and things that give you problems. And so with this, on, with this sensory information overload, I resolved not to go to restaurants at a busy hour, go to some other restaurant that's less crowded. Um, if I was in a restaurant, I would uh, go with my back to the restaurant and, and face the wall of whoever I was eating with. So I learned how to, how to avoid getting overloaded with information. Uh, the doctor in Boston also helped me figure out an existential crisis. Uh, my family was putting pressure on me from back in Ohio to come back and to join my father in his business. And this is something that weighed on me very heavily, and the doctor knew it, and he said, you know, he said, Family, families that give the keys over to the, new gener the younger generation, it can work if the father gives the keys and then goes to Florida and plays golf. But he said that if your father isn't that type of guy, then it probably won't work out. And I knew my father to be a crisis manager and somebody who, no, I'm sorry, not a crisis manager, but a, 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 a micromanager. And he was somebody, it was like his way or the highway, and he would never give up the helm of the business. And I knew that, and so I decided not to go into the family business, but to make my way in Boston. After I left therapy with Dr. Lazar, he kept in, he kept in touch with me through letters and phone calls. I went out to Southern California to go to graduate school. I wanted to teach at the elementary level, and really my, my, my life there was, was very poor. I got into the graduate program, but I was hospitalized four times uh, during psychotic brief psychotic episodes. And for me, a psychotic episode was psychosis, of course, is losing touch with reality. And so what, I would, what happened to me is my mind would start to work beyond my, con my control, just kind of auto automatic, with a persecutory delusion. I felt like there was going to be another holocaust in the United States, and since I was Jewish and my family was Jewish, that we were going to be taken prisoner and killed. And this belief took over my, my mind and I went to, to San Francisco from Los Angeles to seek shelter with an old girlfriend. She wouldn't have me. I wandered around the, uh, the, the Bay Area for a few days, totally freaked out and very, very afraid. And yet there was something, something about what I was experiencing that I knew wasn't right. So I admitted myself to the Stanford Medical Center, and I was in their mental health ward for a few days before they released me. Well, I, I had three more of these psychotic episodes in, in the Southern California area when I, when I was going to graduate school. It was a very rough time, and uh, I was in and out of therapy. My last therapist there uh, misdiagnosed me and put me on the wrong medication. And as you probably know, or maybe don't know, the psychotropic medications are very powerful. And when I, and my, my mind was cloudy. I, 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 it was a struggle to get through the days and I just squeaked through the graduate program with an MA. Um, 
After graduation, I taught at a private school in San Marino for a year. And again, I was depressed. My, my mind was cloudy. I don't know how I made it through, but I made it through. Um, by Wednesday, my, my energy was depleted, and the kids kind of ran circles around me the rest of the week. It was a very humiliating experience. And I made the mistake of telling one of the other teachers that I thought was a friend that I had a psychiatric illness and was taking medication for it. And he immediately shunned me, told all the other teachers that I was some kind of wacko, and they also shunned me. And I, I left that school after the year, but I, I, it was the first time that I learned, or maybe the second time that I learned that I had a condition that was very misunderstood by the majority of Americans. Chronic mental illness, if you're not touched with it personally, or if your family isn't, doesn't have a member who is ill, you probably don't know very much about it, and you probably believe a lot of the myths and stereotypes that the society has of people with mental illness. There are lots of myths. For example, the myth is about willpower, that a person gets depressed because they have a lack of willpower. They can't just snap out of it. It's also, a, a, this is the myth, is that it's, it's due, mental illness is due to weak or bad character, that it's a weakness that brings on the illness. That's completely false. Also, it's the result of bad parenting, and that, I think, is false also. Once crazy, always crazy. In other words, people that have mental illness can't get better. They have no future. And also, kind of the social stigma that's perpetuated by the media is that people with mental illness are violent or dangerous or unpredictable. And, of course, that's because 75% of the stories in the newspapers and magazines and TVs are about the sensational aspects of mental illness. Somebody, somebody kills a lot of people or somebody goes, goes wacko and does something really, really dumb, but very destructive usually. Well, I have to tell you that people with mental illness are no more violent than the rest of society. And they're more likely, I think nine times or 10 times more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. I learned about stigma the hard way in California during one of my hospitalizations a uh, girlfriend that I'd been seeing for a short time came to visit me in the hospital. She was very agitated. She had never been into a mental hospital before, and she was watching her clock, and she's looking around. I saw she was upset, so I said, why don't we continue talking out in, the, out in the driveway, in the parking lot? So we went out to the parking lot, and I told her the good news that I was going to be discharged the next week and that I'd call her when I got home. She looked at me, and she said, I, don't, I never want to see you again. You have no future, don't call me. And with that, she turned and went to her car. Well, I was kind of like really heartbroken, and, but I half believed her because at that time, I didn't think that, uh, that I had a future either. Another time, I was in Cleveland. I, after leaving Southern California, went back to Cleveland where my family lived, or near my family. And uh, I had a job interview as a reporter for a, uh, a chain of uh, small town newspapers in Northern Ohio, and I was talking to the publisher, and I told him that, that um, I had experience in Brazil as a writer, I wanted to write, I thought, it was a, you know, I thought I was capable, and our interview was going along very well. At the end of the interview, or after about 15 or 20 minutes, I said, you know, and I don't know why I said this, but I, I think I know why. I said, you know, I have a psychiatric illness, but I take medication for it, and I can do very well on medication. He looked at me, and he said, you can't withstand the pressure of daily journalism. You can't work for us. And, he, and, the, and the interview came to an end. 
See that? That was another myth that people with mental illness can't stand, can't stand uh, pressure or, or stress. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do in Cleveland. I wandered around for a couple of years. Then I, I saw a, I saw a, um, a consumer. A consumer is a person with mental illness. Consumer being a euphemism because nobody wants to be seen as an ex-mental patient. So I saw a consumer on, the, on a morning talk show in Cleveland. He was talking about the activities he was involved with mental health around Cleveland. I was impressed. I didn't know about these activities, support groups and self-help groups. So they gave his phone number at the end of the show. I called him and I went over to his office. Turns out he was someone a lot like me. He was somebody who was a, a former journalist who became ill with depression, had to leave work, and now he was getting back on his feet. He had a little job, he had a car, he had a wife and daughter, and things were getting better for him. So I shadowed him for a couple of weeks and I learned about all the peer support activities and self-help groups around Cleveland. I also found out about a part-time job at a mental health agency with a group called COPE, a consumer-run service called COPE. They were um, working on a discharge handbook for patients coming out of the mental hospital in Cleveland. And I thought, gee, this is an interesting project. And so I started going to their meetings every week. And I tell you, at that time, I still had kind of a prejudice against people with mental illness because I'd never worked with people with mental illness before. And they were doing some kind of crazy thing, jumping up and walking out of the room, coming back and talking, sometimes a blue streak. And luckily, there was a staff person from the agency there who actually was able to interact with the, with the guys and make jokes and have fun doing it. And so she took away my fear of working with that group. And later she uh, opened up an office area for me in the agency where I could work on this handbook. And she gave me all kinds of support during the eight months that I was there in the agency. Now I wasn't working every day. I was still depressed a lot. So I was coming in when I didn't feel depressed and I could work for an hour or two at a time. During those eight months, um, she and her staff showed me great respect. They invited me out to lunch with them most days. If I, wasn't, if I couldn't go out to lunch, they'd bring back food for me. She stopped by my desk a couple times in the morning, asked me if everything was all right, if I needed anything. I mean, just the, the respect and the dignity that I felt there made a, really a big difference. I felt like I was being productive again. And during those eight weeks, eight, eight months, things started to get better for me. I joined the spiritual community. I, through a friend, I began going to the Unitarian Society of Cleveland, and I enjoyed their, their lay-led lay services. Uh, I met the worship committee uh, chairman, who invited me to talk, give my, give my story of illness and recovery to the church on one Sunday morning. And I thought to myself, oh my God, you know, I knew about rejection. I said, these people are going to find out about me, and they're not going to like me. They're going to reject me. And, you know, it's going to be a terrible experience. They, they, I'm unemployed, too, so what are they going to think of me? Anyway, the, the Sunday came, and I gave my talk, along with two other consumers that gave their talks. And as I was giving my, as I was sitting listening to the other consumers, I was looking at the exit. You know, I'm going to get out of here really quick. I don't want to talk to anybody after giving this such a revealing talk. Anyway, the, the talks ended, and at the end of the, end of the service, the congregation, about 40 or 50 people, lined up in the center aisle, and one by one they came up and shook my hand and thanked me for sharing my story. Well, that was a real boost for me. I felt like, great, that they didn't reject me, but they've, they've, they've accepted me, and that made a big difference. And I made new friends there, and I started working with some of the social action projects, and 
my life starting to get better. I started a romantic relationship. I was going to a fitness center. Things, things, I was getting out more. I had become very reclusive when I first became ill, but now I was getting out more and doing more things in the community, and it felt like my life was starting up again. And that really was the, that was really the start of my recovery. One of the, one of the self-help groups that I joined was working to open up a clubhouse in the evenings and on weekends for consumers. Because if you have a mental illness, it's likely that you'll probably be unemployed. There's no place to go in the community. And so having a place to go at night where you could go and socialize, have something to eat, was, was a really a, a wonderful thing. And just going there and talking to people and playing cards and talking about our lives, what the illness, what our aspirations were, what our dreams were, all these things got me to feel kind of normal about having an illness. And I think it was at that point that I really accepted it. And because of all the other positive things that were going on for me, I started my recovery. And the next thing I, I needed to do was find a, uh, a job, find a, a way of making, making an income that would give me a good life. And so I, in the next four years, I worked as a mental health outreach worker. I worked as a staff writer on a suburban newspaper. I worked teaching Portuguese and Brazilian culture at a university in town. And uh, I also worked as a facilitator of peer support groups. Well, working for the university teaching Portuguese and Brazilian culture was, a, was, a, was really a lot of fun. And it was a great boon because I was depressed in the morning when I went in to teach my 8.30, 9.30 classes but I was able to push aside the depression and deliver the lecture to classes of 40 or, 50, 40 or more students. It gave me a lot of confidence. It felt like, yeah, I could work again full time because, because I could, even if I'm depressed, I can work with that. So at the end of the year, the, the university uh, really sort of like fired all the adjunct faculty. And so I had to make a decision. I had to decide whether I wanted to go back to graduate school and try to get a PhD in Brazilian studies, or would I work with consumers, try to get a job in the mental health field. And I, I resolved at that time that I, I really enjoyed working with consumers. They were very genuine. If they liked what, what we were doing with them, they would tell you, and they would come back to work with you again. If they didn't like you, or you weren't making a difference for them, they would vote with their feet, and you never see them again. So I, I like the genuineness. I like feeling authentic, that I could work in an area where I wouldn't have to hide parts of myself, and where I could make use of my experiences. And after a two-year job search in Cleveland, I landed in New Haven at the Connecticut Mental Health Center that was administered by the Yale School of uh, Department of Recovery. Um, the job in New Haven was challenging because I was the first person with a mental illness to work there full time. And the, the, the agency was very clinically oriented, it was a very medical model. Medical model is where the psychiatrist is pretty much in charge and, and uh, does a diagnosis of, of the person and then puts together what's called a treatment plan to work on the symptoms and other problems caused by the illness. Well, what I was trying to do was very different than all that. And the, the core people that I was working with at the center were also involved in the new recovery model. Now, in the 90s, um, the recovery model um, became uh, studied and developed at places like Boston University Center for Psychiatric Rehab and University of Illinois in Chicago and a couple other places. And basically, what, it, what, it, what they were doing was they, it, they really had a different uh, um, prognosis for people with mental disorders. 
they felt like through research, through a lot of longitudinal studies in the United States and other countries, they found that people with mental illness actually have a much better prognosis than the doctors had been giving them, that 50% to two-thirds of the people with schizophrenia have the, have the, the likelihood of, of recovering, of going back into the community, living more or less independently, uh, being able to participate in their families and their community. And so I was a part of this new wave trying to develop new opportunities for people in the community. And wh what I did at the Connecticut Mental Health Center was I organized and directed um, peer-run services for people in recovery. And one of the services after I first got, the, and of course all this is very counter to the way they do things at the Connecticut Mental Health Center. So I was, uh, I was working hard under pressure with other colleagues from the Department of Psychiatry who are trying to do similar things, writing about uh, the, the sense of self and recovery, writing about uh, different aspects of recovery. The first project that I, that I developed was called the Welcome Basket Project. It, it came out of my own experience because I knew that the transition from inpatient uh, ward to the community was very difficult. Uh, in, the, in, a, in a mental hospital, all your needs are taken care of by the hospital. You, the food, the activities, the socialization, the medications, all there for you. You don't have to do anything for yourself practically. When you get home, it's a different story. Everything you have to do for yourself all of a sudden, and the rhythm of life in the community is much faster than it is in the mental hospital. So you're kind of like looking at all these people whizzing by you, and you're thinking, God, I'm never going to be able to keep up with them. So we started this program called the Welcome Basket, where we met people in their home after discharge, and we started working with them and getting them out in the community, going for, for lunch with them, taking to their doctor's appointments, going to peer support groups. And um, after two or three weeks, they kind of, get, kind of got up and running again, and they could just go on with their lives, and we would move on to other patients. Another thing that I instituted in that program was weekly outings where we took people in the summertime to parks, to the beach, in the wintertime to museums, to movies, and after each outing, we'd go someplace for, for like lunch or for, for a soda or something. And those outings gave people a chance to access recreation and social activities that they didn't have on their own because the entitlement for people with mental illness is very low. It, it just about pays for your rent. and You have no money for anything other than the basic necessities. So they loved the program, became very popular. We had a list of people self-referred to get into the program, and we studied it. We found out that 67%, we had a 67% less rehospitalization rate with the Welcome Baskets clients as opposed to a control group. And of the people that went into the hospital, the Welcome Basket clients, consumers, had a stay, an average stay of two to four days, where the other folks, the control group, stayed for 12 or 14 days. So if, if, if a day's hospitalization cost our administration $1,100 a day, you see what a great savings we, we made for them. And they were very generous in giving us more money for the outings. That program started in 1995, and it continues to this day. It's been replicated around Connecticut. Another uh, program that, that I developed there was called the Consumer Grants Program, where we gave individual grants to people to work on some project of their choice to move their lives forward. And the first year, and people, people at the mental health center, oh, they're never going to do it. It's an application. They won't fill it out. It's too complicated. Well, we had 39 people the first year 
fill out the application. We funded 26 projects and 25 of them were taken to completion. Last year, the program is still continues in New Haven, and last year they had 170 applicants. I think they funded more than 60 of them, and the program has really uh, been proven very successful. Uh, there are three other regions in Connecticut that have replicated the program, and it goes on to this day. Um, there are other programs that I was working with, too. For example, I knew that if, you, if you're in crisis with, me, with a mental health crisis, we go to the emergency room of the hospital, it's a very chaotic place, and oftentimes you have to wait around for a doctor to evaluate you. At the hospital in New Haven, Yale New Haven Hospital, patients had to wait around six or eight hours for their psych evaluation. And they had to be strapped down in gurneys in the hallway until their doctor could see them or could, could evaluate them. Well, there was a room in the hospital that was for that we, we, we kind of commandeered to meet with patients when they came in the hospital in crisis, and we sat with them, consumers that, we trained, that I trained, to give them peer support and an orientation to the hospital so that they knew what was happening, and if they needed to lay down, we'd get them a blanket. If they needed a soda, we'd get them a soda sandwich. we talked to them. If they wanted to sleep, let them sleep. But that program was very, been very successful. The, the hospital that was originally opposed to the program because of the, the myths of mental illness, the consumers can do something crazy, they're going to get in the way of the staff, they're gonna be a problem. They are never, we are never a problem. After two months, the hospital embraced the program and it continues to this day. In fact, it's been, it's been replicated, introduced at three other hospitals in New Haven. Even the, the, the emergency room for people with physical illnesses now have peer support workers working in them also. At the same time that, that these things were going on, uh, I was leading a, a peer support group for depression and anxiety disorder. Um, we introduced new educational programs for people in recovery. Uh, there was a program that was um, created by a consumer with bipolar illness in Vermont, a woman by the name of Marilyn Copeland, who developed a program called the Wellness Recovery Action Plan that actually helped people manage the symptoms of their illness while promoting their recovery and rehabilitation at the same time. So we, we, we introduced that at, at Kinetic Mental Health Center. Even in the inpatient wards, we had that program. And of course, it was opposed because people in psychosis you know, can't, uh, can't do this kind of program, won't be interested, can't focus. Well, that, that wasn't the case. At the same time that these things were going on, I reconnected with my Brazilian, uh, my Brazilian experience, and I was going to Brazil uh, and speaking there about peer support and recovery. Brazil is about 25 years behind the United States, um, and, but they're going in our direction. So when I go down there talking about the things I'm doing here, they think it's their future, and I'm very well received. Uh, this past uh, summer, I went on a three-city speaking tour in southern Brazil and had a great time and was very well received and was invited back uh, this, this coming year uh, to do workshops helping people learn how to write up and tell their recovery story and then to give them opportunities in their communities to actually go out and, and tell their stories. Um, I brought out two books in Brazil with my Brazilian colleagues. I, I wrote a, uh, a history of the consumer movement in the United States. Uh, it was translated into Portuguese. And I also initiated and interviewed people for 17 recovery stories in Brazil. That book was published in 2006. 
it was taught at universities and colleges around Brazil, and it's now out of print, but it's a book that introduced the recovery concept to Brazil. I've been retired since 2009, and since the United States, you know, has been sort of the, 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 the founder of the recovery movement, and also the, 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 where the psychiatric rehabilitation uh, model for working with mental health consumers has been most developed, there are a lot of other countries that are following our example. And because of this, I was able to go to the Netherlands and do a series of talks and workshops in a, a few cities in the Netherlands. And when they came to the United States, I hosted them in New York to take them around to see where consumer-run agencies were and what was going on in New York. And they've, Im they've implemented a lot of these programs, a lot of these services now in the Netherlands. I was also invited to go to Israel to uh, give a series of talks at the University of Haifa, and um, that went very well, and uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, what I've learned about, about this kind of work is that that recovery is very possible and probable for most people. But I also learned that consumers are not that different than, say, the chronically normal people. Consumers want a decent place to live. They want a job, a way of making money to live on. And they also want friends. I mean, that's pretty much what everybody wants, right? I mean, consumers are not that different. And I consider myself a consumer because I have an illness that doesn't go away. I take two medications every night for it. I take an antipsychotic an antidepressive, and I really haven't had symptoms since I started work in New Haven in 1994. The last time I was in the hospital was 1986. So I know that whatever I have isn't going away, but I can live with it and I, it doesn't interfere with my life. And I think that's the goal for, for most of us. Um, one, thing, one thing that I, that I had to learn was about my inner critic. Um, I had uh, internalized the critical voice of my father when I was a child. And the critical voice basically came on in like a tape. Whenever I did something wrong, or whenever I made a mistake, or if I had a setback or something didn't go right, this critical voice would come on and berate me, saying, you're no good, you're never going to amount to anything, how could you do such a dumb thing, etc." And this was the same voice that my father also used on himself, because he had this critical voice too. Anyway, a cousin of mine, uh, was also had the voice because her mother was my father's sister and was also abusive emotionally and verbally, and she discovered a, a eating disorder magazine called Deadly Diet, and people with eating disorders also have this problem with these tapes that come on, and the tapes generally say what you've done is not okay or you're not okay, and the and the book had a way of halting the voice and then giving yourself positive messages to get your mind working in a more positive direction. Well, I, I learned this technique and I've done this and the voice bothers me a lot less now and when it does come on, I'm able to deal with it and move myself away from it. I think that, that my self-image has gotten much more positive. I've been able to identify my strengths and, and to follow my strengths and my activities. I'm more confident. I have higher self-esteem and self-efficacy. I found that I love speaking in public and that my public speaking has been a very great vehicle for overcoming self-stigma. Now, as a parting word of advice, I don't think you have to go berserk to have a successful life in America. And I advise you, and I don't recommend it, okay? However, I would like to end with a quote by Martin Luther King, 
who said, and this is my takeaway message to you, make a career in humanity. Commit yourself to the noble struggle for equal rights. You will make a better person of yourself, a greater nation of your country, and a finer world to live in. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm glad to answer any questions or hear comments now uh, from you. Thank you very much.